This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we talk with LaTanya Trotter, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Trotter is the author of More Than Medicine, Nurse Practitioners, and the Problems They Solve for Patients, Healthcare Organizations, and the State, published in 2020 by ILR, Cornell University Press. Dr. Trotter is also a contributor to the CareWork Network's COVID-19 project and primary investigator for Caring in Crisis, a study of nursing work during the pandemic. In the fall, Dr. Trotter will join the University of Washington's Department of Bioethics and Humanities as an associate professor. Today on the Annex, Nurse Practitioners and the Structure of Healthcare. Stay with us. Well, Latanya, it's so great to have you on the Annex. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Dan. Awesome. Well, your book, More Than Medicine, is about the work of nurse practitioners, their role in the contemporary healthcare landscape, the structure of of healthcare. Really amazing book about how nurse practitioners uh, work on the ground to, as you say in the title, solve problems for patients, the state and healthcare organizations. Now, the story we generally hear is that nurse practitioners are replacements for MDs. There's a doctor shortage, you know, there are places in the country, in the United States, where we don't have as many doctors as we need. So how does your research actually complicate that story? Why is it more complicated or more complex than just nurse practitioners replacing existing doctors? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, that framing, you know, first, I just want to say that, that that is a framing that is accepted pretty much by everyone everywhere, right? Um, it is the framing that nursing um, as a profession has very profitably used um, in order to create a space for nurse practitioners. It is the framing being used by sort of health policy experts. Um, it is the framing that most patients understand, right, um, when they sort of go into um, um, receive healthcare and they see uh, a nurse practitioner, right? So now it really is right, the most common framing of, of thinking about what the utility is of nurse practitioner labor. And really, you know, I went in as most ethnographers do, trying to sort of go underneath the sort of common taken for granted understanding about the way that the world works. And really, you know, what I found and the ways in which my, my work complicates that framing is that, you know, when nurse practitioners enter into healthcare organizations, they are often not being taken up to solve the exact same kinds of problems as physicians are. And, you know, I found that their orientation to the work um, is different. But really more than that, um, I found that the organizations that employ them have very different kinds of expectations about what a nurse will do that looks different than what a physician will do. Um, and then there's also the kind of interactional framing where when patients are in a healthcare encounter with a nurse practitioner, they also make somewhat different demands on the nurse practitioner. Um, and so, you know, really sort of getting, you know, down to the sort of practical aspect of it, you know, what is this difference? And I found two things. Um, one of the things that I found is that nurse practitioners in the context of the exam room practice um, or perform what I call a kind of existential openness in which they often situate themselves as being a kind of listening ear for the problems that are most important to their patients. And so what I mean by that is 
you know, certainly I don't mean to say that physicians don't listen to their patients, but part of the job, part of the sort of classic job um, of of what a physician does is they listen to what patients have to say. um, And then through the sort of diagnostic process, they sort of create a medical problem out of um, the sort of myriad kinds of issues and complaints that patients bring to them. But the nurse practitioners have a, a somewhat different way of listening. And they have a different stance of openness in which they are able to incorporate more of the lay renderings of the complaints that patients sort of bring into the healthcare encounter. And so they often end up really sort of considering some of the complicating problems having to do with poverty, having to do with difficulties in one's family or social support network. You know, they really often end up sort of incorporating some of these sort of more um, social and practical problems into the context um, of the healthcare encounter. Um, And so they really are addressing a much broader array of complaints um, for patients. But interestingly enough, I think the thing that I found that was most striking to me and most surprising um, are the ways in which they end up solving problems for the organization. Because people receive care within the context of organization, right? Um, They're bureaucratic places. It's not just a meeting between a provider and a patient. It's essentially a meeting between a patient and an entire healthcare apparatus. Anybody who's ever tried to seek healthcare knows that often sort of navigating the hurdles of this sort of bureaucratic space presents its own challenges. And so thinking about the ways in which nurse practitioners through assisting their patients often end up helping them navigate these kind of bureaucratically created um, issues that then are both good for patients, but that are also good for the organization, right? Because it essentially allows the organization to not change the way in which it's structuring the way that it organizes and routinizes work, because they have these providers who within the context of the exam room are going to be fixing these larger set of, of organizational problems. I mean, this is one thing that I observed, you know, when I was in a healthcare setting on the clinical ethics side, the issues of care coordination being some of the most bedeviling, you know, issues, even if you could get a person, you know, treated for whatever their primary medical complaint was, that by no means um, solved or even addressed some of these social issues that you're talking about. So if you discharge someone and they have a wound that they need to have cared for and their only place to go is the mission, or some kind of some kind of shelter, you know, irregular housing, or worse, right? Mm-hmm. Then you're going to see that patient again, and probably in your emergency room, right? Instead of in a routine, you know, clinical care visit. So I think your point about how nurse practitioners serve as navigators in this really complex healthcare system with all the coordination problems that we that we have is a very important implication, or, or um, not implication, but aspect of your work. Well, can you tell us about your field site? You know, what is the Grove and what made it a good site to study the ideology and practice of nurse practitioner work? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just a, a word you know, about the kind of work that I do. I'm an ethnographer. And so really my data are, are social interactions. Um, and so a field site is essentially the place that you sort of define as the place where you're going to go to see the kind of interactions that you think might help you answer the questions that you have. And so, you know, in thinking about, you know, my field site, I ended up doing um, my field work within the context 
of what is actually a, a sort of, you know, strange site. Um, I call it a strange site. Um, so it's a place that I call Forest Grove Elder Services, which is a pseudonym. And essentially, you know, this program received both Medicare um, and Medicaid funding to provide, you know, community-based comprehensive care to medically vulnerable older adults. Um, and the idea really um, is that they were serving, the Grove was serving as essentially a nursing home diversion program, right? So as you can imagine, both states and the federal government are, are really trying to figure out how to control costs in the larger healthcare system and really long-term care, particularly nursing home care, um, is, is very, very expensive. And so thinking about how can we figure out more cost-effective ways of um, providing this care and also, you know, really being attentive to the desires of the people who require care, i.e. very, very few people are really just chomping at the bit um, to move into a nursing home, right? And so what are the ways in which we can sort of help vulnerable group of older adults provide support so they can um, remain in the community? So the Grove was really, you know, it was a it was a healthcare clinic, but it was really much more than a clinic, right? So um, it was a clinic. Clinic was sort of housed in a um, center that provided um, adult day services um, for its older adults. Um, these older adults came to the center um, um, between, you know, one and up to five days a week. And in many ways, with the, the kinds of services they got at the center, um, some of them looked very much like a regular senior center, right? They might go and like play bingo, participate in crafts, but they also went there to receive skilled nursing services. Um, there was a medical clinic um, there, which is where the nurse practitioners um, were working, and um, that provided primary care. But it also provided this coordination um, function, right? Because, you know, as anybody who's cared for a medically vulnerable um, older adult knows, that like primary care is really just part of the set of, of healthcare services that folks need. Um, people have a, a range of specialists. And so part of the job of the Grove, you know, wasn't just to directly provide care, but also to provide these coordination services, um, i.e. making appointments for, for patients in other practices, also arranging transportation. Most of these folks um, had some kind of mobility issue, um, and so many of them needed accessible transportation. Um, part of what the Grove did is it arranged and provided directly transportation throughout um, the city um, in which it was located for all of these services. So it was really comprehensive long-term care organization, and at the heart of this organization um, was the clinic. And inside that clinic, you know, there were nurse practitioners, but it really, um, it had an interdisciplinary um, care team model, as you can imagine, um, for providing all kinds of comprehensive services. Um, so it had physicians, it had nurse practitioners, it also had what I call bedside nurses, um, registered nurses, who we often think of as sort of providing work at the bedside in hospitals, but there's also many roles for, for nurses um, in other parts of the healthcare system, including in primary care. It had a um, PT, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and also social workers were a part of this sort of larger comprehensive care team. So, you know, I started out um, in explaining the site and saying this is a strange site. And so one of the ways in which it was strange is because of the comprehensive level of services that it provided. The second way in which it was strange is, you know, really thinking that it really only served a group of medically and economically vulnerable patients. So that was the second element that made it strange. But the third element that made it strange is that 
it was run by by a university affiliated school of nursing um, and that really became very important for me in terms of you know choosing a site to do my my field work um, because as somebody who was really interested in trying to understand you know what it is that nurses do um, and what it is that nurse practitioners do for organizations, I really thought it was very important to sort of find a place where the possibilities of, of NP practice would really be magnified in ways that I could see even within the context of a single site. Well, I'm curious, because there are so many professionals in this setting, how did the nurse practitioners relate to the MDs or the doctors who were also also there? We're so used to thinking about doctors as being the leaders of a healthcare a team or healthcare service and nurses and maybe even nurse practitioners being sort of second in command or kind of line workers relative to those uh, MD MD leaders. So how did those professionals interact with each other at the at the Grove? Yeah, that, that's that's a you know a fascinating question that really sort of gets to the, the heart of um, what was interesting about the site, but also um, what was interesting about the findings. Because again, we started our conversation by really thinking about the sort of common sense framing, right? Common sense framing um, is both that nurse practitioner's primary utility um, is in standing in for the missing physician, um, but also embedded in that really is the sort of ideas that they're extending the expertise of physicians, you know, i.e. they're this sort of second in command. Basically, you know, one physician could see a lot more patients, quote unquote, um, if they have um, really skilled helpers like a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, right? That's kind of embedded in that sort of logic of standing in for physicians. And I think, you know, one of the things that was really um, interesting about how they interacted um, at this particular site you know, one thing is, is again, thinking about what was useful to me um, as an ethnographer, which is that, you know, in many kinds of organizations, you kind of have this primary framing of the physician being in charge, but how that actually, what in charge means and how that gets worked out is kind of vague and, you know, people work this out as individuals. Right. In this site, because it was run by a nursing school, Leadership position of the nurse practitioner was not ambiguous. It was spelled out. So within the context of the interdisciplinary care team, um, from the nursing school's perspective, the nurse practitioner was officially the leader of the team. Right. Um, so that was not just something that was assumed. It was something that was stated. Um, and the second is that the nurse practitioners were the primary care provider of record which again is really quite important because, you know, if you go off into the world of patient care um, and there is a practice that has physicians but also has nurse practitioners, um, it may be the case, maybe not always, but it is often the case um, that even if the NP is the one that sees you, the physician um, remains the provider of record according to the sort of medical record um, and um, according to when people are submitting things for reimbursement. And so both administratively um, as well as organizationally here, um, the nurse practitioners had an official position um, that really put them um, as the leaders of the team who are really in charge of sort of med uh, medically managing their patients. That is Definitely an unusual or at least, you know, not terribly common arrangement in most healthcare in the United States. You mentioned, and I think what's well, another thing that's very interesting about your book is the status of social workers. You know, social work and sociology obviously have 
you know, somewhat of an entangled history in some ways. But as part of this interdisciplinary care team that you observed, your book makes the point that social workers really played a role that we probably wouldn't think of them as playing, actually. We often envision social workers as doing direct support mm. for vulnerable people, helping them navigate you know, either institutions or applications for services and, and so forth. But I think your observation indicated that they do something different at the Grove. Can you, can you tell us how the social workers related to the nurse practitioners and how their, their jobs differed? Yeah, I mean, you know, the social workers are really sort of, a, um, for me, one of the sort of fascinating parts of my book. And in some ways, you know, they almost stole the show, um, analytically speaking, in the context of the book, you know, because, you know, full disclosure, right? I did not go to the site interested in social work. Right. I knew that they were there, <laughs> right? Um, um, and I wanted to sort of understand right, the role in the team, but I really went in interested in the work of nurse practitioners um, and to some extent thinking about how the NPs sort of navigated their work vis-a-vis um, physicians. And to be perfectly honest, as a sociologist of work, I went looking for conflict. Right. I was looking to see, okay, these two primary actors, what I define as primary actors in healthcare, sort of battle it out to see who wins over the bodies of patients, right? Um, not a very sophisticated story, but that's the initial story that I went in looking for. And when I began to see the larger set of practices that the nurse practitioners were doing, the larger set of concerns they were managing and attending to, I kind of had a little bit of an empirical quandary, which was, if the nurse practitioners were doing this much more broader range of things from inside the medical encounter, right? And I, my, you know, just as a, as a regular person from the outside looking in, I really had to sort of think to myself, well, couldn't the social workers do some of this work, right? This, that is, in fact, their domain, right? The sort of idea that they're attending to the um, social concerns um, and sort of you know, navigating and, and working with families um, really is the sort of stated domain of social work expertise. And, you know, in most outpatient settings, there is no social worker, right? And so if you find that some worker is taking on social work services or taking, um, doing work that we might traditionally associate with social workers, you know, the explanation for that might simply be because there is no social worker. But at the Grove, there was a social worker. And um, unlike in many places, um, the social workers here were master's trained, credentialed, licensed social workers. Um, and so I really had to sort of think about, you know, if all of these things were happening inside the medical exam room, you know, what was happening in social work um, and why weren't the social workers doing the sort of fuller range of what we might imagine social workers might do. Um, and to some extent, you know, my conclusion and my observation was that by and large, the social workers were really disenfranchised um, from doing this larger set of work. Because again, I wasn't the only person who sort of scratched my head and thought, you know, why aren't social workers doing more of this work? I mean, when I talked to people, you know, um, in the clinic, outside the clinic, they didn't always have the best way of talking about the work that the social workers did. And in part, there was really this sort of, you know, broader sort of organizational conversation that both happened through 
you know, backroom whispers, but also came across in the light during um, organizational meetings was really the sort of question of why aren't the social workers doing more traditional social work? And to be frank, many of the social workers had the same assessment of the fact that they weren't doing being traditional social work. Um, and really, the answer was that they were busy doing other kinds of things. And mostly what they were end up what they ended up spending most of their time doing was attending to paperwork um, that was required to support um, the services that were happening inside the medical clinic. Um, and really what I saw in that sort of organizational sphere um, is really sort of what's happening in the sort of larger macro level sphere, which is that services that happen within the clinic had a payer. And the more work that you can make visible from inside the, the medical visit, right, you know, that was really sort of driving the sort of financial underwriting of the whole enterprise. And, and to be clear, this was not a fee for service situation, right? These were, this was a kind of, you know, capitated managed care model, if you will. Um, so I'm not making the case that, you know, right, I'm, I'm not I'm sort of suggesting anything sort of nefarious in terms of fee for service. But, you know, even in a sort of managed care setting, the labor that is compensated for is really medical labor. Right. Um, and so you, you essentially have a, an incentive structure that creates an organizational apparatus that really makes work that happens in the context of a medical visit um, within the medical clinic have more value and more weight. And the kinds of things that were that that could be happening in social work really um, was very, very difficult to sort of make visible, um, was really, really difficult to sort of make a priority. And in the context of organizations, priorities are um, things that you pay for. Right. Um, priorities become um, workers that you feel you can't do without hours that you think that you can't do without expertise that you believe that you can't do without. Right. Um, and essentially what you have, you know, in this in the grow was an entire apparatus of medical work that was being incentivized almost you know really at the expense of um, the sort of flattening and marginalization um, and shrinking um, of, of the work that could have been happening in social work. I think this is a fascinating finding in part because it raises the question of the boundary between medical and non-medical work. I think you're focus on the structure of payment, you know, is a really structural, practical and organizational like adaptation to the way we fund this stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so in some ways we get the kinds of care that we, that we compensate, but also we reframe the problems that are common amongst the patients or the members of the Grove, you know, as medical and then we sort of disenfranchise a whole other occupational group that is built on the on this distinction of medical versus non-medical. Yeah. And it's, you know, I mean, your listeners, you know, of the podcast may or may not be interested, right, in the occupational aspirations of, of social workers or even nurse practitioners, right? Some are interested, some are not. But I think really for me, you know, this sort of reframing um, and really thinking about, you know, why I think the observations and the analysis that came out of this fieldwork might be important outside um, the consideration of, of any particular profession's aspirations is that it really gives us a chance to re frame what the original problem was. So again, the nurse practitioner was created to replace 
physicians in part because of physician scarcity, right? We sort of had all of these sort of things happening um, in the 1960s. We had, you know, we were still sort of you know, dealing with the population bump from the um, post-World War II baby boom. We were, um, you know, this was after, you know, really the, the passage of, of Medicare and Medicaid, which very much like the affordable health care, um, essentially took a lot of people who maybe didn't have access to health care and then gave them insurance. And so now they became able to access health care. So we sort of created um, um, more people who were sort of demanding, demanding is maybe not the right word, <laughs> who were able to get access to the health care that they needed um, because they suddenly now had a payer for that labor. And so we really just didn't have um, enough physicians, generally speaking, to serve that need. But we also specifically didn't have enough physicians to serve um, these sort of primary care needs, right? And so again, the framing was, we have physician scarcity. How can we train some people deeper and more quickly um, to sort of solve that problem? And I really think to myself, well, we didn't necessarily think about, um, you know, you know, what exactly is the issue here? Is the issue simply that we are not producing um, enough providers or maybe we're not producing them in enough of an efficient way, but really thinking about, you know, what is the role of the state in um, attending to the needs of its citizens. Because at the same time that you were sort of creating um, the nurse practitioner host of other kinds of ameliorative policies, we also essentially had the rise of sort of, maybe not necessarily the rise of neoliberalism, but maybe the, the rise um, of our acceptance of neoliberalist policies, which, you know, I don't necessarily want to have a whole conversation about, about neoliberalism, but Practically speaking, um, what it did was to say um, the state should really not be providing services. We really want to privatize everything. Right. Um, um, which is another way of saying, you know, the state really could have jumped into this problem of physician scarcity, quote unquote, um, and, and came up with a more systematic solution. Um, and instead, what it did was essentially turn to a profession um, which was willing to sort of provide a kind of professional privatized solution, right, to this kind of problem. And so when you think about the disenfranchisement, um, the sort of professional disenfranchisement of social workers within the context of a healthcare organization, partly what you were, what you were seeing at the micro level is a larger trend at the, um, at the sort of larger macro level, which is that we, um, the state has systematically defunded and disinvested in social welfare policies um, that really um, can make a, a huge difference in terms of thinking about both who's living in poverty, but also thinking about for those who are living in poverty, really sort of helping to assist with the sort of worst aspects of living in poverty, right? So, you know, we've seen an incredible disinvestment in public education. We've seen um, both of the K through 12, but also in higher ed. We've seen a disinvestment in social service programs. We've seen um, a, a state disinvestment um, in social welfare programs. We've become much less generous um, in terms of assisting people who have fallen on hard times, right? And so, you know, inside the Grove, you had social workers who essentially were asked to do a job but we're not actually given the resources to do that job. Um, and instead, most of their work was really helping to manage the remaining resources um, um, for population of patients right through um, the medical clinic. Well, I'm just nodding my head here because, you know, this large scale abandonment of a kind of basic social contract between the state and 
the most vulnerable people or the folks who have fallen on on hard times, you know, that happens. And then what you get is a, is a, is a kind of a Byzantine set of policies that restrict access to what remaining social services are available, right? So the social workers are spending time, I don't know if you'd use this language, but essentially like policing these services or sort of helping folks navigate what is a much more both stingy, but also hyper complex set of policies that are intended almost to exclude rather than to, to include, which actually I think brings me to the question back to in peace for a second. These folks often work with the most vulnerable patients. And so, you know, why is that? And how do members, members, patients of the Grove, how do the members uh, that the NPs you studied treat uh, make it difficult for NPs to simply substitute for doctors? I think that there's, there's a lot of different ways or a lot of different layers to really sort of answering that question. And the first is that, you know, as I sort of, when we started our conversation, I said this sort of framing of, of nurses sort of um, standing in for physicians is a framing that has been um, in use and in circulation um, by a lot of different um, sort of constituents and stakeholders um, who may be in conflict in, 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 in some ways, but in that framing, there, there really has been virtually very little conflict. And one of them has been professional nursing. Um, and professional nursing in making the case that they could um, do the work um, in primary care that we historically um, have sort of um, put inside the medical profession. You know, part of that argument was that, you know, look, you don't just have a general scarcity, right? Um, you, you, you have a scarcity within primary care in particular. And, right, it's not everybody who has a problem finding a primary care provider. It's people who um, are the most or the least lucrative. It is the people who are the least lucrative patients. Right. Um, folks um, who are uninsured, who are depending on state payers. And so from their very, very beginnings, nurse practitioners were allowed to do this work only within communities um, who were underserved. That's actually quite literal. Right. The first places where NPs had practice autonomy were in places that the federal government had declared to be medically underserved areas. So you could literally have, right, a sort of medically underserved area in urban Detroit in which NPs could practice autonomously, but a mile away in a sort of privately run clinic, there was no way that would be illegal, right? And so, you know, part of it was, this is the framing that was um, really part of nursing's moral legitimacy um, in providing this care, which is, yes, we're skilled and yes, we can do it, but also um, we will do it and we will see patients um, that physicians won't see. We will do the work that physicians won't do. And that is why you should let us do it because we're needed, right? Very, very much this sort of um, moral gendered framing um, um, for making the argument. And so that's kind of the historical beginnings, but really that sort of moral Framing really continues to, um, you know, it's not the only framing that professional nursing uses, but it continues to be the one that they use. I mean, nursing researchers, nursing organizations continue to say, you know, if, if you look at who NPs serve, 
they are more likely than physicians to serve those who are disabled, to serve those um, who are um, racialized minorities, to serve older adults, to serve those who are um, depending upon um, public forms of payment for their care. Um, And that really becomes, that continues to be a legitimating narrative, right? So when you look at the growth and you look at their patient population, that was very much a part of the framing used by the nursing school, right? Um, um, In terms of thinking about um, its kind of professional mission and, you know, to some extent professional skill um, in working with particularly sort of vulnerable patients. And so it wasn't just happenstance, um, I guess, is punchline, which is that making the case that NPs are solving this very particular kind of problem for state payers is actually part of the larger framing that nurses, um, at least nursing organizations, um, use to continue to advocate for autonomous NP practice. So I'm putting some things together. What we have in a context of physician shortage, but also the development of new markets with public provision of Medicaid and Medicare is a movement of powerful, wealthy folks in the society sort of away from obligations to their fellow citizens through tax policy, through hollowing out of you know good jobs, right? At the same time, union density is declining, right? You've got top marginal tax rate declining. So the state needs to save money at the same time that it's taken on payer obligations. And then on the physician side or the doctor side, you have those um, more powerful professionals also creating more distance between themselves and the most vulnerable patients in, in society. So we're, you know, this is using one's power to sort of insulate yourself and your occupational group from, you know, the most marginalized, the sort of the most stigmatized kinds of patients. Because those problems don't go away, right? I mean, Medicare and Medicaid didn't solve the problems of, of health inequality, right? And the, the ways that, you know, sort of structural racism, for example, is a determinant, of, a determinant of health. But what we've seen is, you know, the abandonment of those groups by, by the most powerful professions and practitioners in, in our society, yeah, I would even go a little bit further. You know, you know, one of the things that you just said is that, you know, Medicare and Medicaid, you know, didn't solve that problem, but it didn't necessarily even try to solve that problem, right? Um, essentially, what Medicare and Medicaid did was it provided money, but it didn't actually, it did not provide, I don't know what you would call it. It didn't provide mission. <laughs> um, it didn't provide um, regulations, right? Um, it essentially just created a market, right? So that's, that's what privatization does, right? The sort of devolution of the state. Devolution doesn't mean a smaller state, (laughs) um, because essentially what we've seen is a huge growth in medical care expenditures, right? So we, we actually are not seeing a small state in terms of money. We're simply seeing a small state, um, in terms of power, right? We've essentially said, okay, we'll just throw money into this, but we will let, um, the sort of private private actors essentially um, make profit off of all of this money that we're throwing into it, which I, th- which I think is actually, you know, really a very important part of the story, because while it is true 
that nurse practitioners joining the system as a sort of cheaper um, healthcare provider and um, seeing patients that perhaps are not profitable um, for um, within the sort of sphere of sort of private um, healthcare. It's also true, though, now, you know, 50, 60 years you know, later after the creation of NPs, that they're also can, in some ways allowing healthcare organizations to, as private entities, to make money, <laughs> right? Um, it's, it's not just a, sort of a mission of the nurse practitioner um, or um, the ways in which they're sort of providing this very sort of useful um, social-based care, right? They're, they're also working inside money-making institutions who um, are poised to make more money off of the backs and labor of nurse practitioners than they would from physicians. That's so interesting. And, and it gets to, I think, one of the big concepts in your book of organizational care work. So what is organizational care work and how did the NPs you studied care for their organizations? Yeah. Um, so, you know, organizational care work is sort of this concept that in some ways is in conversation with sort of previously um, um, written about concepts, right? So, you know, we have this idea of care work, many sort of feminist economists, feminist sociologists, and, um, and feminist philosophers really sort of identified care work as um, a, a set of, of work practices that really comes out of um, work that is often gendered, i.e. Um, often done by women, which cares for, for, for people who, who cannot care for themselves. And that includes um, folks with disabilities, that includes older adults, it also includes dependent children, right? So it's sort of this idea, um, you know, of, of calling a care work to call attention to work that is very much required and important for um, um, the reproduction of society, but that often goes unpaid, underpaid, invisible, unacknowledged. Um, and also, you know, the sort of idea um, that many folks are aware of, this Arlie Hochschild's concept of emotional labor, um, which is really thinking about, again, gendered work, um, usually sort of expected um, from um, female employees, um, where the organization sort of capitalizes on the sort of emotional expression or affective expression. Um, so, you know, particularly in sort of public facing um, roles like, you know, in the service sector, for example, you know, you sort of expect people to be sort of pleasant and helpful. Um, and we often, you know, just think of that as being polite, but in fact, it ends up being a commodity um, that organizations literally make money off of. And I really came up with this idea of organizational care work to really make visible that these nurse practitioners certainly are doing a kind of labor that care work scholars would very much sort of recognize as being care work, i.e. they're sort of doing work for, for populations who need assistance in some kind of way, but also the ways in which um, the nurse practitioners are doing work that organizations um, materially need to be done um, in order to function. And so, you know, um, when we think about, for example, the sort of coordination um, function that um, patients often need in order to be able to um, really um, make the best use of the medical care um, that they have access to. And often there really isn't anyone who's going to do that kind of coordinating function or that coordinating role. So we, it's very well known that when that's not taken care of, that becomes a problem for patients. But it also becomes a problem for organizations, right? Um, when you have patients who are 
for example, um, having difficulty getting in to see their healthcare providers. When you have patients who are sort of cycling in and out of acuity and never quite stabilizing, right? They become very expensive, um, particularly for the Grove, which has had us a sort of capitated model. They literally lose money when their patients are not able to be sort of medically stabilized um, under this sort of capitated managed care sort of system. And so patients who sort of need coordination and need a sort of broader set of things attended to, when those things are attended to, it doesn't just harm the patient, it also harms the employer. It makes the system not work. And that was very, very visible in this particular organization, which really had a fiscal and regulatory responsibility to provide these sort of wraparound, comprehensive, you know, coordinated care, right? It wasn't just a, a good thing to have. That, that's part of the program. That's partly why Medicare and Medicaid were, were paying them um, sort of enhanced payments um, to do this work. So that was their responsibility. And so, you know, in watching the nurse practitioners take on this broader range of work, I began to notice the ways in which they were essentially solving problems for their employer through trying to solve problems for um, their patients. And that wasn't just something that I noticed within, you know, the the interaction in the healthcare clinic, I also began to notice the ways in which the organization actually held the nurse practitioners to account for doing this work, right? And I think that's why I really um, situate organizational care work as part of larger care work responsibilities, because they're actually essential. um, And they often end up being as much an obligation for the folks who do it as something that they sort of affirmatively choose to do, right? So again, I'll remind your listeners, you know, even though I was primarily focused on the NPs, the site had physicians. So there was no particular reason why this broader range of work had to be done by the nurse practitioner, because there were also physicians here as well, right? And it certainly was partly the case that nurse practitioners have a different professional orientation that helps them to make sense of doing this broader scope of work. But it was also the case that when NPs did not do this broader scope of work, they ended up being penalized, administratively penalized um, by their employer in ways in which the physicians would not have been. You're reminding me of a great scene in your book where the director of the physicians and the director of nursing are talking about how the NPs are taking on so much responsibility. And they're trying to draw this line between the stuff that NPs should do and the stuff that they should hand off to someone else. And it becomes a it's a it's a quandary, you know, for the for the managers here. Cause I think in part we want to have, at least for doctors, the idea is you see a lot of patients. And you, you know, get down to their cheap complaint and you sort of move on and protect your time. I think that's one of the things that the director of the of the doctors, the doctors said. So, I mean, your book does go into a good bit of detail about the day to day lives of nurse practitioners and how they take on more and more responsibility. You just said that the nurse practitioners saw this as a big part of their responsibility. Why is it that the doctors don't take on some of this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I I think that that's, you know, a really sort of interesting question. And I think it in some ways gets to the sort of heart of really the the purpose of um, ethnographic modes of inquiry, which is that on one hand, 
I am observing a set of individuals who have their own individual motivations for um, the things that they do and the things that they don't do. But really, you know, my job isn't to sort of to account for individual motivations, um, to record them, to sort of psychologize them and to figure that out. I honestly have no purchase on someone's internal state, but it's really thinking about the sort of broader logics that make certain kinds of behavior um, make sense, that make certain kinds of behavior comprehensible. So just as I um, previously noted that there were some nurse practitioners who maybe didn't see a lot of this expanded work as being at the heart of nursing practice. They soon found out that regardless of their individual interpretation of nursing practice, that their employer actually needed them to do some very material work that they were then going to have to incorporate, negotiate, um, or be in conversation with. They would not simply be allowed to say that's not what an NP should be doing. And the same, I think, is true for the physicians, right? And so, you know, I certainly made this observation that there were times in which the physicians were asked um, to do this sort of expanded scope of work, right? So it wasn't just that no one asked them or no one ever entertained the idea that, oh, if the NPs do this sometimes, right? Um, Maybe the physicians can also do this sometimes. But when these sort of expanded set of um, concerns and issues arrived um, um, in the lap of the physician, there were sort of two things that happened. One of them is that the physician still held the perquisites of of being a quote-unquote true professional, right? And so they could simply say no um, in ways that the nurse practitioners could not say no without some kind of administrative censure, right? Um, I.e., they had the prerogative to say, no, this is not my job. Um, This is someone else's job. But the other thing um, that I think is true is that, you know, the expanded work that the NPs did wasn't just scut work. It wasn't just sort of like unskilled, vague, um, you know, work that nobody else did. And so the MPs just sort of did clean up work and did it. It was work that actually required skill, right? So at the beginning of our conversation, when I talked about all the things this organization did, transportation, um, medication management, skilled nursing care, PT, OT, you know, traveling around the city um, to see various specialists, coordinating all of that, took skill. It wasn't just work. It took skill. And often what would happen is that you might ask the physician to do some of this work, but they literally didn't know how. They did not know how the organization worked. They knew what their job was, right? Um, Nobody ever questioned um, the medical skill competence of the physician. They knew that job really well. But ask a physician to figure out um, you know, how to get certain kinds of services done, you know, how to sort of manage this larger apparatus of coordination. That was really something that we didn't know how to do. The de-skilling of the highly skilled. <laughs> yeah, right. So so that really, you know, this sort of broader work, this organizational care work really was skilled work that the physicians often, you know, didn't know how to do and often were not cognizant, right, that it was actually work that was being done. You know, in some of the descriptive scenes in the book, I said it wasn't just that the physicians said that they wouldn't do certain things. They also didn't delegate it. 
They didn't say, well, I see that A, B, and C needs to be done, but it's not my role to do it. So I'm going to ask someone else on the team to do A, B, and C. They didn't have any concept that A, B, and C needed to be done because that wasn't really a part of their purview. Any more than an OT knows what a PT does, then, you know, an OT can't tell the PT what to do, right? Because they don't know their job. The OT knows the OT's job. They don't know the PT's job, right? The same was true here, which is that the physicians were very skilled at what they knew, um, but the things that they didn't know, they didn't know. Right. Yeah. And the nurse practitioner's job is to not only know their own clinical role, but also to understand how all of the pieces in any particular patient's care can be coordinated and work together in order to protect not only that person's health, but the organization's bottom line, right? Because you are penalized when you don't coordinate care, Mm -hmm. care well. Yeah, very much so. Okay, well, you've already talked about how um, specific the Grove was, but for maybe graduate students and other ethnographers in the audience, could you say more about the value of an unusual case? Yeah, I feel sometimes like ethnographers maybe are a little bit too mysterious um, often um, about the work that we do. And so in full disclosure, this site in some ways was serendipitous, right? Um, To some extent, I had to sort of figure out after I had sort of found a site, think about, okay, well, what can I do with this site? What can I say with this site? Um, And and what are the limitations um, in the particular kind of site that I had? But for me, particularly as somebody who was interested in understanding nurse practitioners. I mean, I started this work at a time in which NPs were both, were simultaneously very, very visible in the sense that they had a very definite and significant um, sort of foothold in healthcare, at the same time that they were completely invisible. Before I became an ethnographer, I was actually being trained to be a demographer. um, And so I looked for data. (laughs) (laughs) I, I looked for data sets. You literally could not find data sets um, with patient encounter data and know that an MP had saw that patient. Mm. Sometimes you would see a record that says that an MP saw the patient, but you didn't know what that meant. There were plenty of records where the MP had saw the patient, but they were not the provider of record. So the physician on paper, the physician had seen the person. So it was just a mess, right? This was a time period in which people were literally publishing papers simply with, with, with fancy statistical techniques to try to estimate how many nurse practitioners there were. We literally didn't even know how many nurse practitioners there were. Um, not only did we not count NP encounter data very well, we often didn't count NPs very well. They were sort of dwarfed within the larger population of registered nurses. And so, you know, they were literally sort of invisible and they were so in flux. Right. When I began on my work, nurse practitioners were primarily working in outpatient primary care settings. A decade later, MPs are now all over the hospital, They're all over acute care. They were not in acute care when I first started. So they are a, a profession in flux. And so partly our methodological dilemma was that, A, I didn't know what a generic case of a, of a nurse practitioner or um, a nurse practitioner sort of site would even be right. It was so in flux. It was just so changeable. Um, so much of what MPs did or didn't do depended on the organization. It depended on the physicians they were working with. Depended on the patient population. Depended on the kind of insurance they accepted or didn't accept. It was really just kind of a mush, right? There was no doubt that the site, that the Grove, is an aberrant site. But I think the difficulty for me was that I don't know if it was actually feasible to find a quote-unquote generic site. 
it might have looked generic in some ways, but there's nothing to say that it would have been generic in terms of what the NPs did and, and how they related to patients, providers, the healthcare organization, because every organization was really sort of making things up as they, as they went along with how they were going to take up practitioners often. And so, you know, partly for me, you know, it was, okay, well, if there is no such thing as a kind of generic generalizable, what can I sort of learn from the aberrant case? And one of the things that I really wanted to understand was not only how did nurse practitioners understand what it was that they did, but how physicians understood what it was that nurse practitioners did, how what NPs did um, impacted how physicians came to think about what medical care was, um, and thinking about, you know, how do employers go about the work of taking up nurse practitioner expertise? And one of the things that was really useful about this aberrant site as a site that was run by a nursing school, I essentially got to see um, the sort of best case scenario um, for NP negotiation, for nursing negotiation. If there was ever going to be a place where NPs were going to be doing the full flowering of what it is that NP scope of practice could look like. It was going to be at a place where they had the administrative backing of a nursing school. And if I expected to see any kind of conflict or negotiation happening between physicians and nurse practitioners, it would be easier to see here. Um, because, you know, prior to moving to the Grove, I had actually done a year of field work at um, um, at a nursing school, um, I sort of embedded myself within a cohort of family nurse practitioner students. And, you know, um, and they would often have these conversations with their faculty members about the sort of interesting relationship and negotiation that um, NPs have with physicians. And so often what you find is that it's the responsibility of the nurse practitioner to make the physician comfortable with their practice. <laughs> Right. Um, because healthcare, you know, regardless of the regulatory environment, healthcare is still hierarchical. Um, there is no question that in the hierarchy of healthcare, it remains the case that physicians are at the top of the medical division of labor. And so if a nurse practitioner was working in a place where the physician was just going to question their decisions all the time, all the time, all the time, right? Um, that's not going to work out for anybody, right? So it's all from the job of the nurse practitioner, um, as I was hearing from the folks that I spent time with, to sort of figure out a comfortable collegial working relationship in which the physician feels comfortable with the NP. Which is another way of saying right. the physicians are not really pushed to change as much as the DNPs that are often pushed to change. Which then means that as an analyst, what would negotiation look like um, when the physician holds all the cards, right? And right. so I was at a site where I'm like, okay, the physicians may still hold more cards, but the NPs did have some, <laughs> right? And so one of the things that was really useful, I'm like, well, in a scenario in which NPs have some cards, what does that negotiation look like? You know, how do these interactions actually work? Is there conflict? What is the conflict about? Um, right. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that um, were actually um, magnified. Right. Um, in ways that I might not have seen at a less at a less aberrant site. And one of the things that really does come through about the Grove is that you know, nurses really are in charge. I mean, it is a project of a nursing school. And when they talk about being led by nurses, like that is a real thing. It's not just a cover for some kind of truly being run by the doctors. I, the story from your book is so interesting. The list, the NP has a list of team members like next to her door and 
there's not a doctor on it, <laughs> even though the doctor is sort of formally a part of the team, which I think is very, you know, potentially very telling about how this organization, or at least this one particular NP conceptualizes, you know, her, her role as the leader of, of the care team. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's really, again, thinking about, right, um, what are the logics that are laid bare? Because, you know, I don't think the NP actually made up that list, right, of the, of the team. I don't actually know who made um, the sort of list up of the team. But I began to notice as I sort of would walk through the different team pods of each team, and I, you know, recording um, the sort of list of who's on the team. And I was just like, the physicians are not on this list. <laughs> um, and this is a list that, you know, it had the nurse practitioner, it had the part-time nurse practitioner who was supporting the work of the full-time nurse practitioner, the registered you know, nurse, you know, the medical clerk, the person who made appointments, name was on that list, the social worker, like you had all these folks on that list. And the physicians were absent and it was sort of, you know, became clear that there was a, a kind of unspoken organizational logic in which the physicians held power, but it was kind of organizationally invisible. So you kind of had this weird inverted um, world where generally speaking, it's the work of the nurses or the nurse practitioner that is invisible. But in this site, it became the work of the physician that was actually invisible, even in a context in which they were still at the head of the medical hierarchy. Yeah, that's so fascinating. We're about wrapping up our conversation, but you conclude the book in a really fascinating way with a discussion of what came before the grow. We haven't talked about the sort of physical setup of this environment, but maybe if you could talk about what the Grove looked like and then before it became the Grove, it was the Nat Turner home. So could you talk about what was the Turner home and how did that model of care and community differ from the Grove's? You know, you sort of place it as a one potential model for for future development in this in this area. Yeah, it's interesting sort of writing a book because I I think getting the description right is one thing, but getting the story right is something else entirely. Um, And so partly, you know, for me, um, it was really trying to figure out, you know, how to get the story right, how to understand what was happening here. um, And and what are some alternative stories that, you know, we we might tell um, within this particular um, social problem and and sort of set of policy solutions. And so I began by talking about the organizational structure of the Grove, right, and talking about its sort of comprehensive services, um, including a, a sort of primary health care clinic. Um, but architecturally, um, literally the medical clinic um, was sort of situated in the middle um, of, of a larger building that had, you know, a whole set of other services on it. So really, so for example, um, you know, it was a building that had four floors, three that the, the Grove used, um, and the medical clinic was sort of in the middle of the second floor. Um, um, and so it was sort of at the heart of this organization um, that provided all these other kinds of services. And so, you know, if you had walked into the center that the Grove occupied, um, would be struck by all kinds of activity, right? You would be struck by um, a sort of local Baptist church um, that would provide um, um, church services at the Grove. You would see patients, you know, in the sort of arts and crafts room. Um, you would see them doing group exercise, um, like group seated yoga classes. Um, um, and so, you know, there was a sort of larger kind of life that was happening in the center in which literally the clinic was both the architectural center, but also was the financial center, right? 
really the logic. It was the healthcare services and the medicalized needs of this population that really drove the entire apparatus. And so as I was thinking about, you know, well, what what is the story here around these set of facts? One of them was really thinking about the ways in which we might want to problematize the ways in which all of the needs of this population have become medicalized, right? Not only is the state the payer, but they're paying this very particular um, um, reimbursement scheme for sort of healthcare services um, and thinking about what the impact of that might be and partly, you know, in contrasting that with some other kinds of visions. And so the um, building that the Grove occupies um, was previously occupied by a place that I call um, the Nat Turner um, um, Nursing Home. It was originally a nursing home. And the story underneath this nursing home um, is that, yes, nursing homes provide um, medicalized services, but this was really um, the sort of creation of the of the Nat Turner home really came out of the African-American community, really was sort of, they did um, fundraising, finding these sort of resources um, in order to sort of build what was at the time state-of-the-art nursing for African-American older adults um, in need. And, and, and the backstory of this for your listeners is that even though nursing home care um, is paid for by the state, um, African-Americans are, are, are less likely to have access either to those services in general, um, or when they do have access, they usually have access to sort of substandard services. Um, and that's true today. Um, and it was true um, in the 1970s when folks began organizing around the building of the Nat Turner Nursing Home. And they really envisioned the um, the Nat Turner Home as really being a, a community organization. Um, and that only were um, older adults sort of cared for um, in a sort of medicalized way, but also thinking about it as being sort of a center for African-American community life. Um, and I contrast that um, to some extent um, with the sort of vision of the Grove, which is, yes, it's providing a necessary set of services around the needs of older adults, um, um, but it's not a community organization, right? Um, it, it isn't an organization whose mission comes from the community that it serves, which is a, which was a primarily, and by primarily, I mean like 96% of the patient population um, were African-American older adults. Um, and, and so this was sort of, um, these are contrasting visions, right? One that is essentially, you know, providing um, reimbursable medical services versus a kind of community-led vision um, for what it might look like to have um, the sort of broader set of needs sort of taken care of by a community organization that has to be attentive to the voices of the community that it serves. And I really think that that's a, that's a, it's a larger question that we have to think about, you know, as we've been talking about the devolution of the welfare state and, you know, i.e. the ways in which the state has sort of withdrawn itself from tending to broad set of needs of of its citizens, right, and and thinking about the ways um, in which it's essentially allowed itself to sort of balloon into this sort of privatized market um, apparatus, instead of thinking about, okay, well, we have a broad set of needs, some of which are medical, but many of which are not. There might be other ways of organizing this that isn't just about continuing to throw money into the privatized healthcare system, but also thinking about the ways in which we might reinvest in community forms of organizing. I love the idea of imagining different possibilities that, that actually in some ways get closer to 
the fundamental cause kind of model that is sort of underlies a lot of uh, medical sociology's critique of the current you know rescue based healthcare system that we have even the even the kinds of services that the grove provides are often you know the fundamental causes are not you know necessarily just bad luck but position within the within the very unequal you know social structure with the kinds of systemic racism environmental racism the other kinds of health inequalities that come from those those systems and so thinking about accountable organizations that are more accountable to the community and that are more helpful on that fundamental level you know gives me a little bit of hope which is nice yeah i'm glad it gives i'm, I'm glad that it gives you hope but it, i i also sort of you know want to leave your your listeners with a little bit of, of the cautionary tale which is that you know we are living in a perverse moment in which while it often seems like we're talking about neglected people, marginalized communities that we're disinvesting in. You know, I think that that's true, but I think it's important to realize the ways in which we're not exactly um, ignoring mm-hmm. folks. <laughs> we're just paying attention to them in, in um, systematically horrible ways. <laughs> so I don't want anyone to ever forget that the American healthcare system would not run without state money paying for um, um, the care of folks that we often think of as having no value. Um, So the sort of patients who were attending the Grove had bodies that had been systematically devalued, often talk about them as being expenses. And yet the American healthcare system is a money-making system. Um, And so there are folks who are making money off of, essentially off of health disparities, (laughs) right? Um, they're making money off of health disparities right. through funneling or having money funneled from state payers into the pockets of private organizations, whether they be not for profit or not. They're still private organizations. And I think that that's a that's a sort of larger question. It isn't just about money. It's really about power. Right. And the privatized care providers are often less accountable in some way, it's actually that accountability sort of devolved to the patient themselves, right? Yes. The focus on power is so, is so important. Latanya, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to, to share with? Well, okay. So maybe, I, I, you know, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say <laughs> I'm a sociologist and, and to some extent, you know, professional Cassandra, Cassandra's. But as we've been sort of watching um, not only the kinds of things that um, have been burdening our healthcare system because of the pandemic, but we've also been sort of watching, you know, the political conversation around Black Lives Matter um, and this one of the um, calls that has come out of that movement, um, which is really sort of thinking about, you know, abolishing the police. And regardless of where you sort of sit on on that particular sort of question, I think many people have begun thinking about, you know, there might be ways in which we can funnel some of the money that is being used by um, police departments and funneling them into, for example, um, social workers. And I think that, you know, the, the, the thing that I might want to, um, you know, leave your listeners with is that it matters how you funnel that money and to whom you funnel that money. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, I've been thinking about is that I don't really 
think that if you simply um, take money from the police department and give it to social workers, will really do the work that people think it's going to do. If the social workers then simply become police officers of the state, they simply become unarmed police officers, for example, right? Um, if we simply take the same kind of work and we just give it to someone else. There are ways in which the work might be transformed. There are also ways in which the results might not be transformed in quite the ways that we think. And so we really need to think about, you know, community-based control um, as opposed to perhaps police control of social workers. Because I think in some ways, you know, my book gives a kind of cautionary tale um, because you essentially had um, money from healthcare being funneled to another kind of provider. And there certainly are ways in which that care has been transformed. But that transformation has not actually dismantled the larger sort of profit incentive of, um, of, of the healthcare system. Um, and that you still have the same embedded problems within the healthcare system. And so again, it's not just about the money. Um, it's not just about, you know, having more nurse practitioners or even more social workers. If the logic through which they are being paid um, um, and the logic that structures their work um, is really in this sort of privatized system of state devolution, we still may end up with just a different rendering of the problem as opposed to a fixing of the problem. Well, I, I realized that I haven't asked you yet about your current work. So you're the primary investigator for Caring in, in Crisis. Can you, can you tell us about that work? Yeah. Every sociologist <laughs> has sort of had, or maybe many sociologists have had the project that they were hoping to sort of move forward during the pandemic be derailed to some extent. Um, but many of us have sort of used that derailment as a, as a way of, of really turning our attention to the moment. And for me, it was really thinking about this idea of organizational care work that I had observed in nurse practitioners in this site and thinking about the ways in which um, you know, that may be at work in the sort of broader work of nurses during the pandemic, because, you know, all of us have sort of seen both these kind of valorized accounts of nurses um, and the work that they're doing on the front lines during the pandemic, but, but also the ways in which many nurses were sort of left out to dry by their healthcare organizations um, in terms of providing them with protection, in terms of providing them or doing more work to provide them with enough staffing for the work that they were being asked to do, you know, Know, again, with the pandemic, we're, we're not just talking about difficult working conditions, we're, we're actually talking about dangerous working conditions, um, or at least uncertain working conditions in terms of, you know, chronicling um, and categorizing, quantifying the level of danger. And so, again, really thinking about the ways in which, you know, healthcare organizations um, have work that they are doing, which, yes, is about caring for patients, but that is also about having enough volume of patients in, in order to sort of in, stay in the red and to make profits. Um, and so I really just became really interested in developing um, a project. I'm doing an interview study. The, the website is caringincrisis.com, where I am you know, recruiting um, nurses who are working throughout the healthcare system to sort of talk about their experiences working in healthcare um, during the pandemic, thinking about the ways in which they were asked to sort of navigate the demands of their employer um, in order to, to provide um, the kind of care that they were providing, how they dealt with being short-staffed, how they dealt with the sort of uncertainty, how they dealt with not having enough PPE, and often being told not just 
cliff that we don't have enough PPE, but being told you don't actually need it. That is really um, the thing that I am, you know, currently engaged in, actively recruiting folks, actively interviewing folks. And it's really, you know, been quite eye-opening and illuminating to hear the individual experiences of nurses within individual organizations, but also thinking about how to sort of weave these individual narratives together to provide a larger picture of the sort of larger complexity of our healthcare system and the um, role and responsibility of nurses within it. Awesome. Well, definitely we'll look forward to work coming out of that. Latanya, where can people find you if they want to follow you on Twitter or, or other places? You mentioned carryingcrisis.com for nurses out there who are listening who, who want to contribute. Yeah. I mean, you can follow me on, on, on Twitter um, at PhDLT um, is where you can find me there. You know, I also have a personal website, latanyatrotter.com, where folks can sort of, you know, um, reach me um, and, you know, follow the work that I'm doing. So Latanya Trotter, thanks so much for joining us on the Annex. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. This has been the Annex Sociology Podcast, theannexpodcast.com, music by Alina Orsa. For more on the Queen's Podcast Lab, visit queenspodcastlab.org. Thanks for listening.